You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing fantastic. It's a lovely day here. It is a nice day. So nice, in fact, that when I pull up, I see you out front of your house sitting on the stoop. Yep. Well, let's set the stage. Let's tell the whole story here. Okay. You, who are chronically late to record the co-main event podcast, actually texted ahead today to tell me that you were going to be late. That's right, because I'm considerate. So as a person who's chronically late, I assumed that that meant that you would be, like, really late. So I decided I'll go outside and catch some rays until he arrives. Lo and behold, you showed up about 15 minutes late. Yeah. Which I would say is not in any way out of character for folks' time, for people who are running on folks' time. I think normal folks' time is six to eight minutes late. So because of the extra five minutes, you decided to... To text ahead. You know I mean, what? as long as we're telling the whole story, let's tell the whole story that I showed up carrying a piece of baby furniture for you that we don't need anymore that I'm bringing to you. So maybe you might want to factor in the time it took me to go dig around the basement, get this thing out, bring it here too. You're welcome. You what know, can I say except you're welcome? You know what? While we're telling the whole story, <laughs> let's tell the whole story here that I'm sitting over here quarterbacking this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast with a little bit of a crud in my throat. Oh, no. Now, for listeners out there, they'll recall that last week, you, who, if I'm the quarterback, you must be the water boy of of the Co-Main Event Podcast. General manager. Showed up last week uh, with a little frog in your throat, a little bit of a crud going on. That is a coincidence. So It's true. That is a... It's an awful, awfully coincidental coincidence that now here I am, sick, after we had your entire family over for a lovely barbecue. I mean, you also have three small children running around here. You're, you're living in a cesspool of germs, and you want to point the finger at me because I sit across from you for an hour and a half on Monday. I mean... Get out of here. We all know where the sickness came from. We got music again Are this week. Are you down with the sickness? Are you? Answer the question. <laughs> can, I, can I move on now? Need a minute to yourself? We got music again this week. From our friend of the podcast, The Fifth Element, a producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at facebook.com slash the fifth element, on Twitter at the fifth element, or soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official. Three rounds as usual this week in the co main event podcast. And round number one, Stipe Miocic and Junior Dos Santos will do it again, brother. And this time with the UFC heavyweight title curse just barely starting to peek over Stipe's shoulder. And in round number two, also this weekend at UFC 211, all Joanna Jacek has to do is beat a five-foot-two Brazilian who says she doesn't work out. Sounds easy, right? And in round number three, is Yair Rodriguez about to get himself into one of those classic too-much-too-soon type situations? We'll discuss all that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Nick Gordon, who writes, I was checking the headlines and saw a local newcomer to get short notice fight at UFC 211 in Dallas. Now he's going to ask us a couple of questions here. Question number one, why isn't Stipe Miocic fighting in Cleveland? I thought we already figured this one out. And number two, why are we putting awesome fights like Damian Maia versus Jorge Masvidal in Dallas? And then in quotations, worst commission ever, Texas. You know they are going to fuck this up somehow. Now, Ben, it's true, the last time that uh, Steve Miocic went out and uh, defended the UFC heavyweight title, it was, in fact, in the land. Yeah. His hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. You can't do that every time. You can't have him fight in Cleveland every single time. Unfair advantage. Who who would dare enter into Cleveland to fight Steve Miocic over and over again? Well, not after we saw what happened to Alistair Overeem. No. The more pertinent part of this question to me is Damian Maia versus Jorge Masvidal, which is an awesome fight, and frankly, in its consummate striker versus consummate grappler type nature, the kind of fight where I could actually see worst commission ever, Dallas, Texas, uh, making a dog's breakfast out of it. <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, so I know this is a fight you've been looking forward to as the, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu mark of the co-main event podcast. Uh, are you worried at all? 
what I'm worried about, it had not occurred to me to worry that the commission was going to somehow screw up this fight. I mean, not that they couldn't. And, but usually, I don't know, I guess I would worry more if one of these guys had a real noted affinity for weed or something. You know, the, the commission might find a way to, to fuck that up. But what I'm worried more is that after what we saw happen to Jacare, Demon Maya now stands alone as the jujitsu purist representative in MMA. So here the professor. He's, he's he's in a similar situation here, right? Where he what he's done already could warrant a title shot because of circumstances being what they are. He's not getting one, so he's continuing to fight because hey, why the hell not? You, you know, you'll go old and broke sitting around waiting for you to get your rightful title shot in the UFC. And he's taking on a really tough guy in uh, Jorge Masvidal. Is this the one that he goes around and loses, just like Jacare did, and then the beautiful dream that was seeing a, a jiu-jitsu specialist hold a UFC title then just evaporates in the wind? Six wins in a row right now for Damian, the professor, Maya, uh, and the last three against Gunnar Nelson, Matt Browning, and Carlos Condit, uh, especially that first-round submission over Carlos Condit that he had uh, last August has really uh, put the Damian Maya hype train into f- into top gear, I guess you would say here. Do you know what the odds are like on this? I guess I haven't looked, but while Jorge Masvidal uh, is a dangerous dude and is coming off that TKO that he had at Donald Cerrone, which kind of put his stamp, I guess, on, on contender status in the welterweight division here, uh, if I was a betting man, I would think Damian Maya would be the way to the way to bet here. I understand that you wearing your heart on your sleeve over there, have your worries about this fight. But I would just say, if I, if I had $20, I never wanted to see again. Damian Maya might be the pick. Well, then, you know, you could get a slight underdog odds on Damian Maya. Is that so? Depending on where you go. Is that so? Yeah. You could get, uh, I'm looking at, plus 105 on Damian Maya, uh, minus 125 on uh, Jorge Masvidal there. I mean, it's. I, I feel at this point, you know that Demian Maya has figured out really who he is, what he's about. He's not out there trying to be a boxer anymore. And that should make it easier on his opponents, right? You know he wants to take you down and jujitsu your ass on the ground. And you keep thinking, okay, he's going to run into somebody where he's just not going to be able to do that anymore, especially when they all know it's coming. And yet he keeps doing it. Right. And again, like a part of me looks at this matchup and says, okay, Masvidal's the guy who puts a stop to that. He seems like, you know, he's very capable of it, and yet, you know, I would have told you the same thing about Carlos Condit. So who knows? That's the thing. Is like, is, is Masvidal going to be capable of, of stopping Damien Meyer from taking him to the canvas? Because, like you said, everybody knows what he's going to do, and you would think that a guy like Carlos Condit, kind of a cerebral fighter, would be the guy who would keep himself out of that predicament and wasn't able to do it. I don't know that we think of Jorge Masvidal as the same sort of tactician right off the top of my head. I also couldn't tell you what the dude's takedown defense percentages are like. Well, I can tell you, though, that if you he's the kind of guy where if you get into a lot of uh, clinch situations off of either failed takedown attempts or trying to get into a takedown, that's where you don't want to be with that guy because he can, he can get nasty up in close, and I think that's kind of his uh, greatest strength in a matchup like this. I don't know. Out here wearing my heart on my gee sleeve, as you say, I I really, a part of me hopes that Demian Maia does not go the way of Jacques Array here because, man, I'd love to see Demian Maia actually at least get a title shot uh, in the welterweight division right now. He's just, I'm so into what he's doing. I'd hate to see, you know, we never find out the upper limit of it. That's going to bring a real uh, solemn vibe to the next week's show if that's what happens. I'll just show up like with a little gong that I will beat slowly. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, Derek, or David Branch, excuse me, I don't know who Derek Branch is. Oh, yeah, he's an insurance salesman in uh, Poughkeepsie. Okay. David Branch vacated two belts in World Series of Fighting for a second stint in the UFC. His only losses are to Anthony Johnson, a knee bar to prime Rusamar Paul Harris, and that unexpected slam KO to Gerald Harris. Uh, he's on a 10-fight winning streak and is jumping into the logjam that is the middleweight division. He has 23 fights under his belt. And at 35, how high do you see him getting? Uh, his return has no fanfare or promotional push, but he's a really great fighter. Perhaps all he needs is a sweet-ass nickname, question mark. 
This David Branch return, Ben, is flying a little bit under the radar. Way under the radar. You're going to put him on the preliminary FX uh, card for this UFC 211 uh, uh, fight card. Wait, that the prelims are on FX? That's what it says on Wikipedia. Why? That's why I just stumbled there for a second because I started to think, what are we doing are we, now that we're back on FX with the prelims? All I recall is that FX got the movies. I don't recall it having the prelims any time recently. I'm kind of uh, surprised to see David Branch squaring off with Christoph Jotko here in his return fight because Christoph Jotko was one of those dudes that when he signed in the UFC a few years ago, he came in as one of these like highly touted European prospects that was like, you know, 12 or 13 and 0, 14 and 0, something like that. He comes in, he does one of those things where you immediately lose in the UFC as a highly touted prospect. He lost his second fight in the octagon to Magnus Seidenblad, uh, but since then has been on a real tear. Uh, winning five fights in a row, uh, beating Tamden the Barn Cat McCrory, and then beating Talos Latus in his most recent fights. So it's not like they served Dave Branch up with a dude that uh, Branch is just going to go up there and wipe the floor with him. He's going to probably get some stiff competition from Christoph Jotko, and we're going to really find out uh, what those wins that Dave Branch got over there in World Series of Fighting, what they really mean. Here's my hypothesis. David Branch could walk in here right now to your home and you wouldn't be like, oh shit, it's David Branch. Like, you'd just be like, a strange man has walked into my home. You think I wouldn't know him if I, I saw think him? That, I think you wouldn't know him. I, I think, think if, if he walked in here right now, you wouldn't know him. I think if he showed up at my home, I would know who he was. I have some idea of what Dave Branch looks like these days. If I saw him on the street, I might not. I might not put two and two together in time. I'm surprised to learn that he's 35. Unless he was wearing a Branch of Mania t-shirt. Okay. See, now we get into the sweet-ass nickname uh, question. I mean, it never hurts anybody, anybody's uh, recognizability and their visibility in the MMA space to have a sweet-ass nickname. And when your last name is Branch, you got, you got some options. Like, that's a little bit of a runway into some, some interesting possibilities. You think we should put out the call to see if the people out there in listener land can come up with uh, a sweet-ass nickname for Dave Branch? Fuck it, put out the call. All right, let's do this, though. Flash the bat signal, Chad. Let's not rush into this. Okay. Because we don't need a thousand tweets saying David the Tree Branch, yeah. right? Yeah. Let's, let's get let, that out of the way right now. Let's, let's let just it, say that right now, that we, we're not interested in the low-hanging fruit. Let's let it marinate. All right. We'll say, we'll, let's see what he does. UFC 211 on FX, which gots the movies. Yeah. Sunday morning, everybody, if you got something for us, come get it. Come let us know what you came up with. For Dave Branch. Think about it, though. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Ask yourself, look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I just suggesting the very first thing that came to everybody's mind? Because don't be that person. Here's my question about Dave Branch, 35 years old. Christoph Jotko is number nine right now in these UFC middleweight rankings. Obviously, everybody knows about the logjam happening at the top, where I guess we're going to wait until sometime after October to get Michael Bisping versus George St. Pierre. Uh, and then, of course, you got Yoel Romero, Luke Rockhold, Robert Whitaker, Gegard Mousasi, kind of all stacked up right behind him. What, Ben, is Dave Branch going to have to do to even get himself in this discussion? Because Eric Murphy is right. This dude went over there to World Series of Fire fighting and kind of set the world on fire with the two division titles. But, like, as we said, flying under the radar here, I think it's going to take a lot for Dave Branch to even get himself in the paragraph. Yeah, a win over Christoph Jocko won't do it. And that's one of the reasons why this is kind of a tough fight and a, a weird fight for him is because you go out there and you win, it's not like, oh, holy shit, he beat Christoph Jocko? What? And also, you could very well lose that one, and it's like, oh, great, World Series of Fighting uh, you know, two-weight champion. You came in here and got stomped by Christoph Jocko. Big deal. Um, yeah, so I guess... If, the, if getting in the paragraph before you're super, super old, which has got to be a concern for a 35-year-old fighter, you're probably going to have to get on the mic and spit some fire in addition to, to putting the stamp on kids. What you're telling me is that Sunday morning, there's a good chance people are going to be writing us to come up with nicknames for Christoph Jotted Down Jotko. <laughs> you know what? Let's not... Don't confuse people, all right? Keep it simple right now. We're thinking about David Branch here. Next question comes to us from Neil in Northern Ireland. He writes, so your boy Nate Diaz went ahead and dropped another Diaz-ism on the special edition of the MMA Hour this week. 
Now Diaz has been dropping knowledge on us all for quite some time, and I think the UFC is missing a money-making opportunity. Think about this. Tough is falling apart, so why not replace it with a show where Nick and Nate Diaz move in with another UFC fighter for a month and lay some knowledge on that fighter? It's out there. But are you telling me you would not watch Nick and Nate Diaz live with old man Frankie Edgar for a month? I'm not telling you that, Neil and Orla. No, would, hashtag would, would watch. You know, and this, I feel like, pops up as a kind of running joke in MMA. Like, because you have me at, okay, show where Nick and Nate Diaz dot dot dot. Like, you don't even have to have a good idea after that. And this is a good, like, I like how this is like bar rescue <clears throat> or with Nick and Nate Diaz perhaps making your life worse, uh, but definitely entertaining all of us in the process. I mean, that's something that I feel like I've definitely seen worse ideas come to fruition on my TV screen. Uh, we always like to joke about awesome shows that Fight Pass could make. You know, you see Sage Northcutt hanging out with Tyron Woodley, and you're like, that's a Fight Pass show just waiting to be made. you got to, your unlikely friends there. Uh, this... Nick and Nate Diaz, I think, are interesting enough to all of us. And this, by the way, the whole thing like that last week with he gets his special midweek episode of the MMA Hour yep. where it's just Nate Diaz yep. talking. And what he says is that he's not going to do anything. Ain't. And it's the biggest news like of the week. It's like dominating the headlines. People are so interested. People are watching this shit live. They're, watch, they're tuning in live during the week, Chad, to watch Nate Diaz say he's not going to do anything. Yeah, Nate Diaz got invited on the MMA Hour to have his own Ain't Shit Going On episode yeah. of that show. And still the UFC is going to tell us nobody cares about Nate Diaz. Man, they cared enough to watch him talk about not doing anything. Well, and Nate Diaz himself on this hashtag Ain't Shit Going On episode of the MMA Hour asked the question, couldn't the UFC promote me? Isn't there a positive way that they could promote me? And, of course, the, the answer to that question is a resounding yes, as everyone, including... Neil in Northern Ireland knows absolutely the UFC could do a lot more to promote both Nick and Nate Diaz. Nick Diaz got his own bobblehead, by the way, this past week I at heard a about minor that. league baseball game, which is, that's immortality yeah. right there. <laughs> at least you could count on the Nick Diaz bobblehead showing up for this TV show. So the UFC could do a lot more to promote either or both Diaz brother, and I agree with that. The question is, why won't they? I mean, obviously the Diaz brothers are a little bit of a pain in the ass, but as has been said by almost everyone else in this industry now, it seems like our world has come around to their way of thinking in a lot of different ways, especially vis-a-vis uh, -vis MMA fighters getting paid and having to look out for themselves. And which this title shit being a fairy tale. Which obviously is not stuff the UFC particularly wants to have a guy move into a, every fighter's house for a month and teach them, which probably <laughs> puts a fork in this particular idea. But I think that the bigger issue stands, and that is... It seems like Nick and Nate Diaz are kind of pains in the asses and therefore don't get promoted. But it also seems to me like the UFC is missing out on kind of a big opportunity here in the day and age when they need as many stars as they could get. Like, if people will show up in the middle of the week to watch Nate Diaz say ain't shit going on, that's a guy you can do something with. Right, but, and Danny Downs and I talked about this a little bit in our trading shots this weekend because, you know, you had this going on with Nate Diaz. You also had the Anderson Silva thing where he's saying, give me the interim title uh, or I'm retiring, and Dana White saying, hey, maybe you should retire. Same well, way you said to Misha Tate before she won the title. Right. Um, and then you got uh, with Nate Diaz where he's saying, hey, the UFC has to meet my number if they want me to fight, and Dana White can't wait to get out there and say, hey, he's not popular enough. People don't care enough about Nate Diaz uh, in order to give him what he wants. And it seems like this is, I think this is a cautionary tale the UFC has learned in the Conor McGregor era, uh, where they saw a potential for a superstar, went all in on that superstar, really hyped him up. He got so big that he could really call his own shots, and did, and kind of held the UFC over a barrel on some things. And they, it seems, have come around to the idea that we're not going to let somebody get bigger than the brand. We don't want that individual fighter to get bigger than the UFC brand anymore. And so whenever you see anybody popping up now and trying to talk like that, you know, the playbook is set in stone. Dana White immediately is going to be like, nobody cares about him. He's not popular. And you're going to have to turn around and promote some of these people right. uh, at some point in the future when they do want to fight for you again. You're going to have to turn, then turn around and be like, this guy is awesome. This guy's a star. Um, and yet, as soon as he wants anything more from you, you tell us that nobody cares about him and he's a nobody. Uh, but that just seems to be like how the UFC has decided to go. Like, there's plenty of promotional opportunities 
for a lot of these guys, uh, like guys like Al Iaquinta, who even though you're beefing with him, people are into the beef, man. You could do something with that. Uh, but instead, you know, the UFC wants to be able to pick out these guys who are going to make it super easy on them, not going to make any waves, and that's who they want to go with. They want to kind of handpick their stars in advance rather than kind of letting the marketplace decide who the fans care about. Yeah, the, the notion that you're not going to let anybody get bigger than the brand seems to me to be in direct opposition to the necessity that you need to start making a lot more money. Right. Well, if and you especially are WME, IMG. If you, if basically, you're telling us that there, all these guys aren't stars. You're also telling us there's one star, and it's Conor McGregor. Ronda Rousey's gone now, probably not coming back. Conor McGregor's changing diapers right now, which, man, you know he's probably coming back sooner than he thought he would now that he's dealing with the reality sitting mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. you know, squalling baby you, up in your house. Do you think that he has, like, a Gucci brand uh, PTP yet to to, uh, <laughs> well, to keep the stream of urine from getting on the Gucci robe that Conor McGregor is wearing? As the father to only two girls and no boys, I don't, I don't even want to hear about the PTP. That's, that's for you guys to sort out. Yeah, I, I would tell you, Ben, I, I use the palm of my hand to deflect another human being's urine from hitting me in the face. There's got to be not, a better way, Chad. Not every day. <laughs> not every day, but you hear what I'm saying. Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington. He writes, so the rumors of the Iceman cometh back to fighting. Nice. Is there any chance WME had a vision in the night of a certain giant skulled rival of his? And would Dana begrudgingly let Tito back for a one-off fight to make a quick geriatric buck? Because we all know your boy Scott Coker would love the opportunity to get back to us about that. <laughs> <laughs> Discourse this ill-advised just hashtag would watch shit. Nice work here, Andrew Millington. This took this story was a related story, I guess, same story if you ask me. Took another turn today with Matt Hughes. Right. Going on the MMA hour and reconfirming to us what we had heard and thought in the past, and that is he, after losing his cushy UFC front office job, is now thinking about getting back at it. So you got both. Uh, Chuck Liddell and Matt Hughes now thinking about coming back. And I think this uh, this example that Andrew Millington has given us, which would be Tito Ortiz against Chuck Liddell, uh, even over in Bellator, scarily close to reality, right? Yeah. Like, well, would work. Hashtag would work. I think, though, this is going to be a real test for the UFC. Uh, for the new UFC, uh, because, you know, with, with Matt Hughes's retirement, it was like, okay, we've seen enough here. There was already kind of a precedent because of the Chuck Liddell thing, so we ushered Matt Hughes into retirement. But if he came out, eh, you know, it, may, it might look back, bad on Matt Hughes if he comes back out, gets knocked out a couple times or something. Um, but it really wouldn't blow back on the UFC. But if, if Chuck Liddell came back, then it would put the UFC in a sticky situation, because either you got to let him go and let like Bellator hungrily snatch him up and you know they would and you know you got that Pete Ortiz uh, opportunity the, the platform is right there they would have no qualms about making that fight uh, and they would have a lot of success with it because people would watch the shit out of that fight so the UFC has to know that you don't want to like serve this up to Bellator on a silver platter and you would like to make some money too you are in the business of making money, putting on fights. So you, you would see the attractiveness of this fight. And yet, then you kind of sell your soul to make this one if you're the UFC. Because Dana White was the one going on now about how Chuck Liddell was his friend, how he was worried about his health, didn't want to make a single dollar of that money, was what he said back then. And if you reverse course on that now, especially when everybody knows, hey, you know, new owners, um, which includes Dana White, that you got to make some money here, you're, you're in a rough spot. Man, that looks bad for you. Maybe we will find out that they were merely business acquaintances. <laughs> right? They were, Chuck Liddell was never my friend? Right. Wow. You know what's ironic, though, is, and more so maybe with Chuck Liddell rather than Matt Hughes, and even though Chuck Liddell went on that like titanic losing streak to end his career and where Rich Franklin right, knocked him out uh, when a fly landed on Chuck Liddell's chin yeah. as they were fighting in the <laughs> octagon, uh, that was viewed as, like, the positive MMA retirement, yeah. right? Chuck Liddell and George St. Pierre, who was also now, also coming back, those were viewed as, like, the success stories, the MMA retirement success stories, and now here we are. Well, Sadly ironic. I think, though, that it was when 
Zufa kind of flexed its financial muscle to get Chuck Liddell into retirement, it seemed like, okay, this is the flip side of the bad things that can happen as a result of Zufa's like heavy control over this sport. The good thing is that with that control, they can do something like this, like solve one of fight sports' oldest problems, which is dudes fighting way past the point they should and, and doing horrible things to themselves. You can convince a guy to walk away by giving him some money, doing like this. And yet, when you look at it, you can see how that probably was not sustainable for the long term, especially new owners come in and want to, you know, get leaner and meaner as a corporate machine. This is exactly the first kind of thing they're going to go after. Uh, but man, if you turn around as the new UFC and say, you know what, we changed our minds, we're not that worried about Chuck's brain after all, uh, let's go get that money, it, that just seems like you kind of you sold out to make a quick buck, and that is not going to be a good look. Maybe Chuck Liddell and Matt Hughes can get jobs at Fertitta Capital. There you go. They might be hiring. Yeah. It's a possibility. Sure. What, what kind of jobs, like, for example, would you see them doing there? Uh, well, it's a, 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 like Risk a venture, assessment. Yeah, venture capital firm, right? Uh -huh. So, like, yeah. maybe they're the guys that go out and find winning ideas for products. So they're idea guys. They could be the idea-finding guys. Okay. Like All right. If you, well, Chuck has, like, an accounting degree, right? Like, he could... There you go. He could get to work there. There you go. Matt Hughes could uh, make country breakfast for everybody? Just a couple of actuaries. Yeah. The newest, <laughs> there you go. newest hires over there at Fertitta Capital. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Hey, while you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Stories just constantly evolving. Uh, it's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, as we always say, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, the UFC heavyweight title is on the line. Saturday night, UFC 211, live from the American Airlines Arena in Dallas, Texas, which is known to the plebes out there as the place the Dallas, Maver Dallas Mavericks play. Stipe Miocic. Stipe! Stipe! He's going to renew that rivalry with Junior Dos Santos. Everyone remembers these guys last fought at UFC on Fox 13, December of 2014, and that time around, JDS got the victory. Uh, by unanimous decision, which was a, a hard-fought and close fight. And Could I have gone either way, really. Around 30% of the media scorecards had it for Stipe Miocic, according to MMADecisions.com. Uh, but Junior Dos Santos gets the win. Somewhat uh, divergent uh, stories, though, from these two guys in the wake of that fight as Stipe Miocic goes on an absolute tear, wins four fights in a row, including beating Fabricio Verdum to win the title, obviously, at UFC 198. Junior Dos Santos has only fought twice since then, a loss to Alistair Overeem and a win over Ben Rothwell, and has been beset by injury, just had shoulder surgery last year, uh, ended up taking almost all of 2015 off, but he's back now, uh, and he says he's ready to go at only 33 years old. How different will this one be, Ben, considering uh, everything that both guys have done since then than we, what we saw in that first fight back there uh, at the end of 2014? Well... It's hard for me not to feel like Stipe has gotten better and gained a lot of momentum and Junior Dos Santos has kind of done the opposite. Like, I was kind of surprised just in looking at the records and realizing, oh, yeah, uh, JDS has only fought twice since then. Yeah. That's surprising. You know, I guess it it does feel like he's been less active, but I didn't think it was going to be that less active when, you know, Stipe's fought twice as many times. And that's with having the belt where it's going to be a little tougher to schedule one and keep it together. Uh I just, I guess with Junior Dos Santos, I'm willing to believe almost anything can happen. I think yeah. he can show up 
and for one night at least, be the guy he used to be. But somewhere I get the feeling, deep in, deep in my gut, that he is on a downward trajectory and that the best he can do is kind of hope to slow the decline a little bit. Yeah, well, he was actually scheduled to fight Stefan Struve back in February, but Struve pulled out with an injury, and this tells you everything you need to know about the UFC heavyweight division, that uh, Junior Dos Santos, rather than go through with that fight, was then offered the chance to fight for the heavyweight title. Why not? Uh, so there you go. You have a winning streak that's holding steady at one. He also just had a kid, my understanding, uh, a couple of months ago, so uh, he considers himself to be a changed man with more than ever to fight for. Oh, here we go with that one, huh? So... Here, here's the thing, though. He comes in off, you know, basically a long-ass fight camp because you got to think he was getting ready for Stefan Struve back in February and then had to turn around and, and regroup for this May title fight. Uh, considering the, the, you know, the amount of ring rust he might have after almost a year now because his last fight against Rothwell was in April of 2016, plus this long fight camp, I wonder if that plays positively for him or negatively for him because, you know, with that much time to prepare... You could kind of see it going either way. Either you're going to be incredibly sharp or you're going to be uh, worn down from having basically back-to-back fight games. Yeah, that's true. Well, and, you know, he did look good against Ben Rothwell. And maybe there's something to be said for having a little bit of time off and uh, kind of getting a chance to refresh a little bit, uh, especially because... You know, you look at his fights with the last two fights with Cain Velasquez. The beatings that he took in those fights were ones that I remember, especially the second one, everybody looking at it and going, well, this this could be taking years off his career and or life. Uh, maybe it's the opportunity to, to fight a little less often uh, and, and rest a little more is just what a guy like that needs. You know, it wouldn't be like the first time at all that we see, you know, he's 33, which is as a heavyweight, you're, you're basically a college junior. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time we saw somebody in that division find a new life uh, by tweaking one or two things. It would be amazing if Junior Dos Santos could come back and re-win the UFC heavyweight title after like four and a half years since he lost it. Remember, he lost it to Cain Velasquez back at UFC 155 December of 2012. It would be a hell of a turnaround for him to, to go from, as you said, basically off the map in the heavyweight division because, you know, the guy's still a good fighter. Uh, he's still uh, obviously capable of a lot. We know the high ceiling that he's capable of from seeing him at the height of his powers back in those days, but just because of the injuries and inactivity and because he took so much damage in those most recent fights, we haven't really been considering him that much. It would be a Cinderella story if he can come out here and beat Stipe Miocic and win the heavyweight title almost five years after losing the damn thing. That'd be some kind of Randy Couture shit. It would be. Right there. And too bad the 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 prize is that you get the UFC heavyweight title. Because <laughs> then you're going to get diverticulitis and get hit by a, an SUV while you're out riding, riding your motorcycle around Vegas. That'll happen. Lot of, lot, you know, if anyone can be said, I think, to have made the biggest change since that first fight, it's obviously Stipe Miocic. That, you know, that was his, the first time in his career he had ever gone five rounds uh, when he fought Junior Dos Santos. The stat that stuck out to me the most, I just looked at the fight metric stats, and you look at it, and you think maybe it's a misprint, but it said Junior Dos Santos stuffed 17 takedown defense, or 17 takedown attempts by Stipe Miocic in their first fight. Stipe finished 1 for 18 in takedowns. Wow. Which is kind of incredible. Uh, and I haven't had the chance to go back and watch that first fight yet, but just assuming that that is an accurate statistic, that is really something, and is the kind of thing... That makes you wonder if, on top of everything else we just mentioned, Joe Dos Santos is going to be able to, you know, recreate that performance against a guy who has only gotten better and only gotten more confident in the fight since then. Well, I would think that one difference you'll see in this is that uh, Stipe would not go in there quite so uh, eager to take him down. And, you know, it's funny, you started talking about takedowns that fight, and I started thinking, man, I don't remember that fight happening much on the ground. Well, I guess that is why. Uh, when you when you stuff that many takedown attempts, that, I guess that will keep the shit standing. Uh, I think though that if when you're looking at how Stipe has changed since that fight, he does seem, I think, to know a little bit more about who he is and where he's going to find success uh, as uh, you know a UFC heavyweight at this point in his career. I, I don't think that he. You know, I can see where you, you might go into that first fight thinking, like, all right, Junior Dos Santos can be kind of a scary striker. 
if you let him get going. He can, you know, like a lot of heavyweights, he can turn your lights out with one punch. Uh, you feel like he got the wrestling advantage, you want to put him on his back. Um, but I don't think Stipe needs to do that at all in order to win this fight. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think he could, uh, he could probably fare just as well on the feet, and that would tell us a lot about where Dos Santos truly is in, in you know, his ability to accept damage and his ability to recover and have surgery and come back from those days when he, he got a little beat up. Uh, it's amazing also to think that if Stipe Miocic wins this, he will put his name on the list of guys who have defended the UFC heavyweight title successfully twice, including Randy Couture, Tim Sylvia, uh, Brock Lesnar, and Cain Velasquez, which is, I mean, obviously we're talking about a very volatile history of the UFC heavyweight title here, but that ain't a bad list to be on, really. You're saying put himself on the precipice of greatness. He would then have a toe in the water, my friend, of being the first man ever to defend the UFC heavyweight title three times. Which is, And for this next fight, you can only assume that they would book it against Thor the, the Thunder God or <laughs> yes. someone like that. Uh, when you say about Junior Dos Santos um, wondering about his ability to take damage, let's be honest and say what you really mean is as soon as he get hit, gets hit, is his head going to swell up? Like a a basketball that's been left out in the ring. He is one of he has like one of the worst faces for getting punched in and the it entire gets sport. It gets worse and with progressive beatdown. I would I'm not a doctor, but I would think it's not going to get any better. <laughs> Let's just say that. Oh, uh, um, okay. One last thing I wanted to ask you, since you mentioned it earlier, and this is just kind of a general topics in MMA question. The idea you saying like okay has a kid has more to fight for and I can already feel myself preparing to hear that like narrative trotted out. Do you believe that? Because on one hand I can kind of see it where like okay, you know I can see how having a kid will make anybody a little more serious about their career or at least like um, it can realign your priorities. It, it reminds you of like why you're really doing things sometimes. Um, and yet, for the lifestyle of a fighter, I could also make an argument in the other direction. Right. And I've heard, I've heard a couple fighters say to me, I know Danny Downs has said it to me before, Julie Kedzie has said it to me before, that they kind of get sick of the idea of like, hey, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this thing for my family. And that for most people uh, in MMA, um, fighting, and especially continuing to fight, can be more of a selfish thing than it can be for your family. Because you're taking a lot of time away from your family, you're putting yourself at risk. You know, you're making some money for your family. You know, ideally, if you're one of the top guys, you know, Junior Dos Santos can make some money for his family. Um, for a lot of people, not exactly true. And plus, when you do get that kind of realigning of priorities, not to mention, you know, the sleep and stuff you might miss out on, it might not necessarily lead to you being better as a fighter just because yeah. of the peculiarities of that job. Yeah, and I think, I don't know that there's any way to know. I think it would be different for every single person, different right. for every individual. For one thing, uh, I think some of it would depend on your home life. Just You're talking about the lack of sleep, and I see that Junior Dos Santos' first child was born March 9th of 2017, which is almost exactly one month before my current youngest son was born. Uh, so and you get eight hours every night, right? So Junior Dos Santos is dealing with a two-month-old here, uh, and that would lead me to believe he ain't getting much sleep. But who knows if he's even there, right? Because he's in fight camp. He might be... Like Chris Wyman living in the guest room. Right, exactly. Yeah, so who knows, man? And, and I, can, I can only speak from my personal experience that having children didn't make me feel like a young, bloodthirsty warrior, right? Like, to me, it like kind of turned me into an old softy, to be honest with you. Yeah. So uh, maybe that's different for a guy who, uh, who was a professional fighter to begin with. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't... It didn't sharpen my tooth for violence, let's just say that. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Anyway, that's going to do it for this round. Ben, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me and we'll move on to round number two? Yes. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, you alluded to it earlier in the show, but Chad, how is George St. Pierre going to show up in his goddamn Captain America uh, rash guard talking like he's throwing down the gauntlet to Michael Bisping when really what he's saying is, hey... Name your time and place as long as it is after October. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me, man? That's not how you do me? that. You can't come at the man and just be like, that's right, I, I will take you on any time as long as it is in this window that is most advantageous to me. October? Man, it is May right now. What the fuck is that bullshit? Are you fucking kidding me, George St. Pierre? 
And you're the, trying to lose the goodwill you have built up with fans. The, you're trying to make Michael Bisping into the good guy here? Whoa, well, that would be a trick to turn right there. The most amazing thing, as you just said, was George St. Pierre, like, kind of couching it as a call-out. <laughs> which Come is on, amazing. Man. Like, that's a dude who understands how to craft a message right there. <laughs> Say that for George St. Pierre. Well, Ben, uh, as you know, it's fight week! If you saw the tweet from your guy Dana White, UFC president, announcing... Didn't see it. He blocked me, that, but okay. That's, that's Saturday is UFC 211. He went ahead and tweeted out uh, a flyer depicting all four of the main event stars in this weekend's fights, except for the straw weight title fight that we're going to talk about in round two, when the UFC meant to put out a picture of Joanna Jacek opposite Jessica Andrade. Ah, they went ahead and went with the other Brazilian strawweight, Claudia Gadella, in the actual picture, which, whoops. Whoa. I mean, I see how you could make the mistake, right? They're both women, they're both Brazilian, they're in the... Are you fucking kidding me, UFC? Get your shit together. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Wanna double check that one? That's gonna do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. champion going to put it all on the line again at UFC 211. This time, uh, going to go in there and do it against Claudia Gade- uh, I'm sorry. Nope, Damn the it. other one. Damn, the other one. Going to fight the other one, also known as Jessica Andrade. Uh, has herself a three-fight winning streak. Um, you know, looked, looked pretty sharp in her last one that, uh, that went over Angela Hill. You can see that just in terms of pure athleticism and and ability and power she's got some stuff to offer is that enough that's going to be the question here i think it's an interesting matchup you know you don't want to come out and say anybody's going to beat joanna yajacek at straw weight right now because she's been so damn good uh since becoming champion but but jessica andrade is certainly not a pushover she's been nails since coming down from bantamweight really winning those three fights in a row so it's exactly the kind of fight that I think you want to see Joanna Yajacek in right now if you are, as the entire MMA world seems to be, kind of a Joanna Yajacek fanboy. Right. Because it's not, you know, Jessica Andrade is certainly no pushover and it's going to be a good challenge and you want the opportunity to watch Joanna Yajacek go out there and do what she does for five rounds and see how she handles this five foot two powerhouse that's going to be coming at her. So, it's a fight, frankly, that I'm looking forward to, and it's a fight that I'm cautiously optimistic Joanna Yajacek should win, unless you fall back to the old UFC rule of thumb that is just when it seems like there's probably going to be a lot going on for somebody, that's when they drop one. Some, uh, you know, relatively speaking, some interesting uh possibilities coming up in the life of Joanna Yajacek, and uh, she has to beat Jessica Andrade to get there. Well, okay, let me ask you this. Does Do you look at this fight and Andrade's chances here differently as a result of uh, Joanna Yajacek's last fight against Carolina Kovalkiewicz? Because going into that one, it looked like, okay, Champy going to roll over Kovalkiewicz here. And she didn't. I mean, she won the fight, but that was a tough fight. You know, she she took some damage in that fight, like more than we've seen. Uh, she really had to go out there and work for her money in that one. Uh, surprised me, maybe even surprised her, uh, what a tough fight that was. And I think that that one, you know, she still remains undefeated after that one, but it did show you, like, she's not untouchable. There are some things that you could do in there uh, that could disrupt her whole game, and you could potentially beat her that way. And yet... Is Andrade the person to be able to pull off something similar? Yeah, I mean, one of the the fun things about this fight is that against Carolina or Carolina Kovalkiewicz and Claudia Gadella in those last two appearances, you did start to see Joanna Jacek start to look a little bit mortal. It wasn't just 
her going out there and beating the 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 absolute stuffing out of Carla Esparza like she did back at UFC 185. You know, Gadella came in with a good game plan, uh, arguably won the first round or two, and then just couldn't really keep it together over 25 minutes, which I think is going to be a hard thing for anyone to do against Joanna Jacek, who fights with such precision and at such a high pace. And then you had Karolina Kovalkiewicz, uh, who, who came out and, you know, kind of tried to do the opposite thing uh, and just got outstruck by a, uh, a woman who is likely a better striker. And so, yeah, man, it, it both of those appearances make Joanna Jacek look more human, I guess, for lack of a better term. And I think that uh, Jessica Andrade is a really good fighter and a really uh, tough matchup in some ways. Uh, but Joanna Jacek has just been so good that that it's hard to imagine anyone going out there and imposing that kind of uh, uh, successful game plan over 25 minutes is one of the things that that is hard for me to believe. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting about Jessica Andrade, though, is that she can stop you. You know, she stopped Joanne Calderwood. She stopped Jessica Penne in two of out of her three strawweight fights. So uh, if it goes the distance, I think you've got to like the precision, mean-spiritedness of Joanna Champion. But, you know, you can't count Jessica Andrade out from, from doing something highlight reel-esque. Now, if you're the UFC and you're looking, like, let's talk again about are there opportunities to promote these people. Uh, and it always has kind of surprised me that Yuenny uh, and Jacek has not become a bigger deal. I mean, I'm sure that some of that is regional, um, but it seems like all the pieces are in play that you she's one of those fighters you wish people would just hear about and give her a chance, and you're like, how can you not like this person? And then she goes out there to fight, and how can you not enjoy watching her? Um, will something significant change there if she's able to, to defend it one more time, or is it just going to be kind of the same stay in the course? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I think you brought up a really uh, uh, prescient point about Joanna Jacek when she got to fight on the undercard of that Ronda Rousey-Holly Holm fight at UFC 193, which is... is Great positioning, obviously, for Joanna Jacek, and she went out and got a uh, lopsided unanimous decision win against Valerie, Valerie Letourneau that night. But uh, I think your point at the time was, will the people, the crossover fan that tunes in to watch Ronda Rousey throw someone on their head and arm armbar them in, in under a minute, will they take a liking to the style of Joanna Jacek, which in some ways is more brutal and more uh, bloody and and is basically 25 minutes of, of picking apart her opponent. Uh, and I still don't, and, and I think it turned out that you were probably right about that, and I still don't know that Joanna Jacek's style translates to mainstream success, but clearly she's super popular inside the MMA bubble and is, again, yet another example of that Diaz style uh, uh you know, phenomenon where you, if you're the company, you don't really get to pick who's popular. You get who you get, and then you've got to make something out of them. And I agree with you that Joanna Jacek is somebody that they could probably make something out of if, if they were creative enough about how to promote her. And I think there are some opportunities coming up for her that, that would lend themselves to that promotion. Not only the idea that if she beats Jessica Andrade, she might have a fight with Rose Namajunas on deck after that, which would probably be the biggest strawweight matchup of the year. Uh, which obviously is a relative thing to say, since the strawweight matchups don't necessarily get that big, but Joanna Violence against Rose Namajunas would be about as good as you can do in that weight class right now. And on top of that, even though the UFC had to circle the wagons and say that the uh, that the announcement went out prematurely, this idea that the fight company might be bringing in a women's flyweight class, which Joanna Yejajic has already talked about fighting in, uh, brings up another potential promotional outlet for her to see if she could become in the mold of conor mcgregor the second ufc fighter to to hold two titles in two different weight classes at the same time but like i said you got to beat jessica Andrade first and that's one of the things that makes this seem a little bit like a trap fight for her at least in my opinion see there you go with your pessimism again though you've just been around for a while man <laughs> keep seeing how this stuff works over and over again yeah okay I guess I can't argue with that. Uh, do you want? Uh, have you looked at the odds for this one? No, I have not. Do you want to take a guess? Uh, I, I bet always enjoyed this game. Joanna Jacek is a two-to-one favorite. You're close. Uh, about minus one seventy. Okay. See, I was a little surprised to see her not higher. I mean, not to say 
Andrade's a tough fighter. She could definitely, there are ways for her to win that fight. Um, but I think when you've seen Yin Jae-chik's dominance and stuff in the past, and also, you know, her moving to uh, American Top Team, you're not going to become a worse fighter that way. Uh, and I, I think especially her moving there when she was already the champion uh, says a lot about kind of her commitment to continued growth, which is one of the things that I think separates uh, really long-time dominant champs in this sport from sometimes from people who uh, get the belt, go a little bit crazy, and then lose the belt. Um, somebody who can be champion, feel like they're the best in the division, and also still feel like they need to get better. Um, I see stuff like that, and I think, that person could be champion for a while. Here's an interesting thing about Joanna Jacek. This will be her fifth title defense if she is able to successfully get by Jessica Andrade, which would mean that the Rose Namajunas fight would be would be her sixth title defense, which is uh, notable because she would tie Ronda Rousey were she to win that one. Oh, Ronda Rousey go. had six successful uh, women's bantamweight title fights. Is that number meaningful to you, or is it malarkey? It's meaningful. Uh, I think that somebody, if they wanted to be a jerk about it, could make the argument with both uh, women's divisions that because there, you know, it's not the same as it would be defending the UFC lightweight title uh, six times or something. Just because uh, some of those opponents, you know, they it wasn't like there was a whole lot of people to choose from at the time, uh, and so they just kind of had to grab some people and, and keep making fights. I think you could say that about some of the fights on Ronda Rousey's record. You could say it a little bit about Yuani and Jacek's. Um, but it's still, you know, it doesn't, that does not make the accomplishment meaningless. I think that, you know, if she were to kind of keep going, you could pretty quickly make the argument that even though she was way more low-key about it and didn't make as much money or have as many fans, Yuani uh, and Jacek's on her way to cementing herself as, you know, one of the most dominant women's champions in, in MMA history. Yeah, and one of the interesting things to me about this women's 115-pound division is that the fights are, in fact, getting tougher, which I think is a, we talked about earlier in the round, but like uh, Claudia Gadella, Karolina Kovalkiewicz, Jessica Andrade, Rose Namajunas, you can kind of see the division evolving, if you will, in front of your very eyes. Uh, and I guess as a counterpoint to, to the shallow nature of this division or maybe the, like, the evolutionary nature of the competition, I guess I would just say you can only play the games that are on the schedule, right? Like, it's not Yolanda Yedjicic's fault that, that there's no Daniel Cormier out there for her to beef with. Oh, man, what I wouldn't give for a a female strawweight Daniel Cormier coming down there with her shirt tucked into her track pants, uh-huh. Telling towel Yolanda, around her neck. Yolanda Yedjicic not to spend too much time at Disneyland Europe because she doesn't want to academically... Get back in the uh, classroom. Yeah, disqualify herself from competition. I think we got them here. You know, Joanna Jacek just she just needs to make sure she's got enough money to buy all the sneakers she wants. That's, that's what it's about. That's why you moved to ATT. You don't want to lose that sneaker money. No, you do not. Got to keep that coming in. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back. Round number three. The kid, Yair Rodriguez, has been on an absolute tear since coming to the UFC in 2014. We just saw him do a number on the legend, BJ Penn, in January of this year. And we've been talking on this show every time he fights about how he seems like a potential star for the UFC and a potential star who could be important in terms of unlocking the fight-crazy market across the border in Mexico. And yet... I was still surprised to see the UFC serve Yair Rodriguez up with this matchup against number two in the division, Frankie Edgar, the old man. What's going on here, man? Is this too much too soon for Yair Rodriguez? Because it seems like if you're the UFC, you are hitting the fast forward button on rocketing him up to the top of the division. Uh, and I don't know if it's premature or not. Yeah, it does seem, you know, it does seem fast for that kind of a fight. And yet, 
maybe that's the downside to the BJ Penn fight where you put him over by having him go out there and beat up a legend who never should have taken the fight in the first place, is then what do you do after that? Because you kind of, it's tough to go back to like, all right, now Yair Rodriguez is going to fight a marginally tough middle-of-the-pack uh, you know, guy ranked seven or eight or something uh, on the undercard of a UFC on box card. It's, it's tough to move backwards that way. And so you start moving forwards and looking around to see who's not booked in the division. It's not hard to see how you come across Frankie Edgar. And in a way, I, you know, maybe this is exactly what you need right now, because this will be a litmus test one way or another for Yair Rodriguez. If you can go out there and beat Frankie Edgar... Well, now you're not just the dude who uh, has a lot of finishes that include the word flying uh, somewhere in there. You know, Now you're a legit contender and, and potential title challenger in that division, which already has some, so you've know, you, you got to really something to work with. Then again, this could be a great time for Frankie Edgar to peer over his evening paper, put his spectacles down, uh, you know, change out of his uh, Mr. Rogers sweater, go in there, teach the kid a thing or two in, in violent fashion, um, then make it home in time for pot rust supper uh, with, with Mrs. Edgar, and we all go, oh, yeah, that was way too much too soon. But I guess the question would be, like, do you risk ruining something about Yair Rodriguez by doing this fight, or would it just be, you know, a helpful learning experience once all the bruises have healed? Yeah, if nothing else, I think we're going to see what Frankie Edgar has left in the tank. Like you said, the guy is 35 years old at this point. He's the old man of the division. Still right up there among the elite, though. Pretty much only loses to people who become the champion or people who already are the champion if you deduct that loss he had to Gray Maynard way back in 2008. Uh, but we saw him show up at UFC 200 and, and have a good competitive fight with Jose Aldo, albeit one that he lost, uh, obviously. And then we saw him show up and fight Jeremy Stevens at UFC 205. And while Frankie Edgar won that fight, I think that we all looked at it and thought, hmm, doesn't look like the 100% Frankie Edgar that we know and love came out afterward and said, I believe that he had a pretty serious injury headed into that Jeremy Stevens fight. But this Yair Rodriguez matchup to me is interesting uh, in, in more than just seeing what happens with Yair Rodriguez because I think it's a good litmus test to find out if Frankie Edgar is still doing the damn thing at the top of his game at 35 years old. And if he is, I feel like he is almost a uniquely terrible matchup for Yair Rodriguez in this division because, you know, we saw a little bit of it, I think, even in the Alex Caceres fight with Yair Rodriguez, and that was someone who's going to dictate the pace and the distance and not just let you stand, you know, behind the three-point line and throw weird spinning shit at them. Uh, and he it can, in fact, stifle his offense a little bit. And you would think that Frankie Edgar, uh, with his fast-paced boxing skills and his takedown ability, would be a master at that. He just seems like the kind of dude that, when I think about it, at least on paper, should be able to smother Yair Rodriguez's offense and beat him that way. And that, that to me, is just another wrinkle in this matchup that makes me think, why would you do this? Why would you match Yair Rodriguez at this stage in his career up with a guy like Frankie Edgar? But it's also, I guess, uh, the most interesting part of this matchup, just to see what happens in that regard. Well, you know, and in some ways, that's why I really like this matchup, is because, uh, like, this is the kind of thing you wouldn't see in boxing. This is one of the things we often criticize boxing from afar for, is that when they saw, hey, we've got a, uh, a prospect here who can appeal to the Mexican fans, uh, he's, he's exciting, you know, we, we put him over against an aging legend. Um, now let's find another winnable fight for him uh, against somebody with a name. They wouldn't put him against Frankie Edgar here because he might get beat. Um, and you don't want to destroy the whole hype train. And in MMA, the sport is a little more forgiving in terms of we realize, like, hey, everybody can get beat now and again, uh, especially in their continuing development. It's not necessarily the worst thing for you. It doesn't ruin all your career prospects if you lose one here or there. Um, and maybe even when you lose one, you'll learn something necessary for you to become the guy you're, you're eventually capable of becoming. So I like that the UFC was willing to book a tough fight for this guy, somebody that they're clearly excited about and, and want to do some big things with, um, because it, this does feel like, all right, now we're really going to find something out, which you could not really say about that BJ Penn fight. We all knew what the hell was going to go on there, and that's what went on. And while it was 
exciting in one way, it was also deeply sad in another way. And this one, all right, like let's let's answer some questions. Let's find out what we got. I, I like that. Yeah, and maybe one of the weird things about this matchup is juxtaposing those two fights so close to each other, where it did feel like the UFC served up BJ Penn uh, as a, a well medium rare steak for the young lion to eat up, uh, and now to put him in this fight immediately against Frankie Edgar uh, seems like a much much different test for him. Uh, and I agree with you that it does seem like classic UFC matchmaking, where they would give, you know, where they would try to make the best fight, make the best uh, competitive matchup. And and in that regard, I think it's really easy to like this. It just seemed so strange to me when they announced this, because I guess because of the BJ Penn matchup, made it seem like we might go a different road with Yair Rodriguez, and maybe uh, with the WME IMG owned UFC and with this new direction for the company. I wondered to myself it would if it would become more commonplace to take a more boxing style approach to building your prospects, and this fight makes it seem like nope, we're just going to throw them out there with the toughest guys we got and see what happens. Yeah, which I mean, if you're trying to convince me uh, to buy your pay per view, right? And I I think it's admirable. I agree with you, and I guess it leads me to this question: Do you think that? a boxing-style approach to building up those prospects would work in MMA? Or would we immediately, if you rolled out 12 versions of BJ Penn for Yair Rodriguez to beat up, would we see right through it? I think we would call shenanigans on that fairly soon. And even when you look at, like, the rise of Conor McGregor, I mean, you know, he ends up getting, like, a title shot off of a win over Dennis Seaver, and that's kind of the close uh, as the UFC gets to that boxing style. But then eventually, you're going to have to fight somebody tough there. You know, you're not going to be able to keep him away for very long. Um, so we are going to find out what you got in there eventually. And that is one of the things that still remains for me one of the enduring appeals of the sport, despite just the mountains of bullshit on all sides. Once you get in there, and once you close the door, you know, the truth has a way of rising to the surface there for everybody to see. And you can't really hide from that. You know, you can you can run from it for a little while. You can delay it, uh, but you you cannot ever find like a safe harbor from that. And that is one of the great things about MMA. And I, you know, I think the UFC is at its best when it embraces that aspect of the sport. Well, we're gonna see what happens. We'll see if Yair Rodriguez is ready, and if he's not, we'll see uh, how it affects the kid. Um, you want to do just saying stuff, and sure. then. Uh... Then we'll move, we'll get out of here for this week. What do you just say? Well, Ben, you know I loves me some Daniel Cormier. I know that. Love everything about the man. Love him as a fighter. Love him as a broadcaster. Love his fashion sense, both on fight night and in the broadcast booth. But this week I read a couple quotes from Daniel Cormier when he was apparently appearing on the Edge and Christian podcast of awesomeness. What is that? Which is a professional wrestling podcast hosted by uh, former tag team champions Edge and Christian. It's just... Uh, reinforces the idea that everyone has a podcast. Sure they do. Everyone in the world has a podcast. Anyway, they uh, they got Daniel Cormier talking about why people don't like him now and why they appear to cheer for John Jones. And so I guess this week I'm just saying it kind of seems like Daniel Cormier still doesn't totally understand what's happening. So I just want to read these quotes. Lately I've been having to do a little bit more talking because fans have They've kind of turned on me, which is okay. I get it. It's okay. But I kind of relate myself to Roman Reigns, John Cena, those type of guys. Guys that are supposed to be good guys, but the fans just have something that they don't like. Something that doesn't resonate with them. So I've kind of been having to talk a little bit more, and it's refreshing. People don't want to be told, I'm good, so you should cheer for me. John Jones is a guy who makes a lot of mistakes, so maybe people can relate to him more. They go, forget this Daniel Cormier goody two-shoes, him and his kids and his family. I want that guy that does coke and parties and crashes cars. That's the guy I want. Maybe I'm not cool enough because I go to work, I fight. When I'm not fighting, I go back and I go to my kids' soccer and basketball games. That's what I do. I go to wrestling. I'm not out partying. I'm not out doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Maybe I'm just too boring, but I'm fine with it. I like my life. I like your life too, Daniel Cormier. Sounds like my life, frankly. Uh, with the exception of the wrestling. <laughs> Yeah, I don't go to wrestling. Well, it depends on what kind of wrestling you're talking about, man. Uh, but I guess I'm just saying, that's not why this is happening, man. Like, nobody is looking at John Jones and being like, yeah, I relate to that guy. It's, exact, it's in fact the exact opposite. Like, people are just mad that they took his title away and you won it without having to beat him. That's all that's happening here. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad... 
This week, I'm just saying, you know, after Ally Akita went out there and knocked out Diego Sanchez, then got all mad at the UFC when they didn't give him a bonus, went on the Fortnite and said, you know, the whole bonus system is bullshit. He, he can't believe how normalized it's become uh, and that he thinks the bonuses are just something that the UFC uses to control fighters. Uh, then, over the weekend at MMA Junkie, we have a story where a, a highly placed UFC official is quoted anonymously um, as giving their account of why Ally Akinta is ineligible for bonuses for three fights um, because of this series of affronts to the UFC, trashing a hotel room, uh, no-showing the fighter summit, and then publicly blasting them about knee surgery, um, which they say he lied about. And they say, okay, no, see, it's he's being punished. That's why he can't win a bonus, because he did these things that we don't like. And so this week, I'm just saying... You guys are kind of saying the same things. Because if the UFC is saying, hey, the reason he didn't get a bonus is because he's being punished uh, for a series of actions deemed uh, unsavory to the UFC, and Ayakinta is saying they use these uh, bonuses to control us, you're just kind of rewording the same thing there. Right. No, those two things are not exclusive. That's to each right. Other. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all of the stuff that happens at UFC 211 and then look ahead to whatever the heck else is going to be happening in mixed martial arts. It's going to be something. Something will be happening. And even if there ain't shit going on, we'll still be here. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. What if what happens in the show where Nick and Nate Diaz come to your house and they show you how to live like with a vegan diet, get you on a road bike? Get you out there swimming, swimming in the pool. You're doing a little swimming at night. You know, you you smoke a little lettuce and you get the the nunchucks out. What if they just completely revolutionize the damn sport? What if they just change everybody's lives? You know, it would be awesome. I was thinking this when we were doing that question on the show. Looking for a fight. Take Dana White out of it. But instead of him, he has problems traveling.